All right, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Well, we are entering week two of our series on the book of Philippians. Pastor Josh, whose pulpit I am privileged to share today, to occupy, has titled the series Press On, and since he's in charge, we will keep going with that theme. <laughs> Each week we're looking at a different aspect of the theme of pressing on, of pressing forward in our faith for the sake of the gospel, in our lives. Last week, Josh kicked us off and gave us a lot of the background in the book of Philippians, talked about the history, talked about the context, etc., etc. And he set the stage for the series. This week, this week, our topic is press on with the good news. And again, this is, this is uh, the topic I was given. Josh told me, teach on this. For those of you that, that don't know, I'm a professor at the Anderson University School of Theology, and I, I teach for a living. This is, this is kind of what I do. Um, but I, I think I'm going to teach today, but, but forgive me if a sermon breaks out. Forgive me, forgive me if the nerd stuff leads to the God stuff. Forgive me if a little bit of vibe and a little bit of, 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 of music comes into the room because I really feel like that's what the Lord wants to do and bring today. I'm not pulling punches here. Now, I need to take a few minutes to set the stage for our passage, which it's never fun. I'm just going to be real honest with you. When your, your pastor tells you, hey, preach on these six verses, and you think, dear God, man, these six verses? You know, and you think, well, I'm not in charge. I've got to do this. What am I going to do? And I saw it, and I thought, oh, my. Okay. You need to understand what's going on in this section. It's, it's verses 12 through, six, 12 through 18. Paul's just introduced himself, and now he's setting the stage for... What's going to happen in the rest of the letter? You need to know he's in prison for a capital charge. That means he's facing the death penalty. He's, he's been going around telling people that there's a new king, a new lord, that there's good news, and that the good news is that, that, that Jesus, a man who died naked, alone, as a criminal, a foreigner, essentially, not a citizen, who died in shame on a cross with no bathroom breaks, all the blood and everything else coming out, this man is actually the lord, the king. That's treason. That'll get you hung. And Paul's waiting to see. This is not a slap on the wrist thing. He's waiting to know whether he will die. And the Philippians, we know from the context and from later in the book we'll get to, they are supporters of Paul. They help fund his ministry, and they know he's in jail, and they are worried about him. And they can't just FaceTime him. So they've got to send one of them, a leader named Epaphroditus. They send him with a letter to Paul along with money, and we know that Paul's being supported by the Philippians in jail. Do you know in the ancient world, prisons were pretty bad places, but they could vary. If you were not a citizen, if you were a slave, if you were someone who didn't have any status, what would happen is you get thrown in a pit and shackled to the wall. No light, no bathroom, nothing. But if you were a citizen, and Paul was, you might have a small room with enough light to write with. They might give you materials, as long as it wasn't you know, shivs or, you know, files and, and, you know, like cakes or something, you know, that they bake in. As long as you don't get those, they'll let people bring in whatever, okay? Here's the thing, though. Regardless of your situation, whether you were in jail in the pit or in the palace, one thing was true in the ancient world. The local authorities were not responsible for feeding you. Do you know that? Prison is a lonely place now. We have one right here, by the way. And let's honestly, Father, bless those folks. Bless our neighbors, bless our friends that we don't know, maybe that we do, who are just up the road and who are suffering and, and doing time for things they've done and some that, that maybe got caught up in things that they didn't. 
We just ask that your spirit would be on them, Lord, and that you'd take away loneliness and that you'd speak to their condition, Father. Amen. One thing I know about those folks, I visited earlier this year and played some music with them. Um, they get fed every day. Tax dollars pay for it. But in the ancient world, you were responsible for everything. And if you had no friends and if you had no family, you were out of luck. It's not the state's job. The Philippians, we find out, are the ones feeding Paul. This is intimate stuff. These are friends. He's got, they're paying for his lunch. So Epaphroditus doesn't just come with a letter and read it. He's like, oh, thank you. He comes, they come with lunch money. Thank you, Philippians. And Paul is writing back in gratitude and saying, thank you also for supporting my ministry around and about. Now, when Paul ended up in prison, we know that the Philippians would have wondered, what's going on? They'd entered into a partnership with him, and they'd supported his ministry. So he ends up in prison. They feel responsibility, and so they send Epaphroditus to check in. How bad is it, Epaphroditus? Tell us. Find out. Is Paul in a pit, or is he in the palace? How much food does he have? Is he sick? Disease ran rampant in ancient prisons. In fact, Epaphroditus gets sick while he's visiting Paul. Unbelievable. Almost died. But they want to know what's going on. How's he holding up? Here's the thing. They've gone all in on this wandering teacher. And now this man's in a prison, and they want to know what's going to happen to us. More importantly, probably, is they have started to call a crucified man Lord. They've started to say this man is king. And the person that told them that is about to get beheaded by the actual king. What's going to happen to the gospel? You know Christianity is not an inevitability? You know it's a miracle you're sitting here today? It may be, as a hist I'm a historian primarily, that's what my PhD's in. It, I, I do believe it may be the most uh, ridiculous improbability in the history of humankind that you're sitting here today. A man who never traveled more than 90 miles from his home, did all of his ministry in three years, was not formally educated, and chose as his ambassadors a bunch of low-class, blue-collar workers that had never traveled either, couldn't read, a lot of them. And it's now a religion followed by over 2 billion people. The fact you're here is not to be taken for granted. This is the situation as Paul writes his friends back. You see, the book of Philippians is a letter Paul writes back to his friends and sends home with Epaphroditus, the same man who just brought him a letter and lunch money. Keep that in mind. Because in our passage today, Paul is writing back to let them know the situation, and he's doing so to kind of set up a foundation for the rest of the letter. That's why I think today's sermon is so important. I hope to give you a few nuggets that, that will mess you up in a good way, but I, I really hope also to set the you know, pave the way for Josh and what he's going to be say, saying. Because when Paul talks about later in Philippians, for instance, I press on, or when he says, uh, uh, don't be anxious about anything, or when he says, I have joy, you're always supposed to see that through the lens of the chains Paul's in and the, 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 the sense of instability and the living on the brink. You got to see it through that. All of this matters. In effect, today we'll be setting things up, buckle in, I encourage you to follow along on your smart devices if you prefer. We've got it on the screens for those of you that rather look up. And we actually have these books that, that uh, have words in them you're welcome to use too. They're called Bibles. But 
Here's how the verse goes. Paul, hearing of his friend's worries, writes them back, and this is what he says. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Now, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. Now, the latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former have selfish ambition. They like that I'm in prison. They're not sincere, and they suppose they can stir up trouble and kind of become the leading preachers. I'm paraphrasing here. They got a churches to grow too, right? But what does it matter, Paul says? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of that, I rejoice. Yes, I continue to rejoice. Press on with the good news. Press on with the good news. It sounds good, doesn't it? Press on with the good news. I can maybe get my voice going even better. I don't have a good preaching voice, but I'll do my best. I'll, I'll add a little vibrato. Press on with the good news. It's <laughs> the best I got. Inspiring. It's a call to action. But here's where things get tricky. Press on to where and how. If I could talk to each of you individually today, and I can't, but I kind of can't, and I told you, hey, your job, God has told me, quite frankly, that your job, Thomas, your job is to press on. You might say, brother, what are you talking about? To where? Do you know where I'm at? Do you know what I'm up against? You got any clue? And that's what today's sermon is about. Before we go any further, I want to say this clearly. And this is where I lay my cards on the table. No gimmicks. Sometimes the best way to press on, I'm, I'm going to say that differently. The best way to press on is to press in. The best way to press on is to press in. I know the call is to press on. I know our pastor has told me that's the point of this series, and I know he knows what I'm talking about here. But the Lord has been dealing with me hard on this point this week. You know, I once heard an African-American preacher say, sometimes you preach the sermon and sometimes the sermon preaches you. And listen, when you're the, the pinch hitter or the, the relief pitcher, the guy that stands in and you're not calling, you're you're. You're the backup quarterback, right? Someone else is calling the plays. I get this passage, and I looked at it, and I thought, okay. And then I start looking at it, and I say, oh, no. Because if you guys weren't here, I promise you this. I'm serious as I can be. I'd be preaching this sermon to an empty room because I'm the one that needs this. You matter more than anything in the world, but you don't right now to me. Because this one's for me. Sometimes the sermon preaches you. Press on for the sake of the gospel, but some of us don't feel much like pressing on. And if you people want to press on, fine, but I'm going to need a piggyback. Bring me with you and let me know how it looks. That's the truth. Sometimes you don't feel like being up front. I don't feel much like being up front. I don't feel like an overcomer, a conqueror, someone who's taken names for the Lord. I don't want to press on. I'm tired. I got stuff right now. But what if, what if, what if, 
What if it's not, what if pressing on isn't the point? What if we don't start by pressing on, but we start by pressing in? And what if that's what Paul's asking us to do? In order to press on, you first have to press in. Let's look at the text now that I've orated for a while and, and told you all I can. Let's look at the text. I, I wanted to give you a sense of why I think this is important, why this matters to me and why what I'm about to say is not a matter of academic debate. And spoiler alert and warning for those of you that hated school, this is a trigger warning. We're going to get into the Greek. And, and the, the reason I'm going to do that is this literally is the foundation of why my passion is so high right now today. You see, the key to pressing on is pressing in, and we know that because Paul says it right away. Let me show you. He says, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. How many of you are in chains for Christ? How many of you are standing tall? How many of you have saved 10 people this week? How many of you have broken up unchristian relationships? How many of you have got someone off meth? Yes, I said it. How many of you are giving up things in your life for the sake of the gospel? Now listen, some of you are like, yeah, I did all those things, and you're a liar. But some of you are saying, I did some of those things. I'm like, hey, good, thank you. And the Lord empowers us for those things. That's important. That is important. But there's something somewhat seductive in a culture like ours about doing things for Jesus. Almost macho. Our culture repeatedly tells us that our value is in what we produce. If that's true, and producing for my boss is a good thing, producing for my family is a good thing, producing for my country is a good thing, etc., 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 then producing for God, who's above all those, must be the goodest thing. It has to be, right? And we, we imbibe that. We, we believe that. And don't we feel good with what we achieve? I met someone this week. I met someone this week, new Christian, only been a Christian for two years, and uh, it was really neat to hear her enthusiasm, but I really, I had to stop. I know she felt insecure talking to me as a professor. Um, I'm a professional Bible nerd, right? And she's, but here, here's what I want to say, and I want to say this with all grace, because what a beautiful, what a beautiful spirit. But she felt the need to tell me that she'd already saved three people in her first year of being a Christian. And that's a good thing. I'm not at all disparaging that. But what I am saying is this. When it came to justifying her belonging in Christ and her value to me, she had picked up on the narrative. She'd read the script. She learned from us. The first appeal she went to was numbers. And it broke my heart. She'd gotten the message that doing things for Christ was the point. It's not. And I'm going to get to that. The truth is it feels good to do things for God. I'm a big fan of the band U2. Not my favorite, probably, but close. My favorite album, in case you're wondering, is Achtung Baby. They wrote in Berlin right around the time the Berlin Wall was falling. It's a fantastic piece of work. If you ever want to hear it well and hear it good, go to Pax Verum and Lapel. They have, they have a record player and they have an amazing sound system. They have about 100 records and they've got Octung Baby, an original pressing there. 
Don't ask me how I know, but I know. <laughs> and tell them to put Octung Baby on, and you'll get a sense. You'll feel that Cold War pressure and the tension and the anxiety. That's not, that has nothing to do with the sermon. That's literally just a recommendation for music. But there's another song later. I like U2's earlier stuff better. But later they have a song uh, uh, called Stand Up Comedy where Bono, the lead singer, says, says this. And it stuck with me. He says, stop helping God across the street like a little old lady. We do things for Christ because we think God can't do things for himself. We talk like we're walking with the Lord, and as soon as a truck swerves, we think, oh, God, get out of the way. You can't handle that. I want to protect you. That's the God most of us serve, and I'm preaching to me. Because when things get tough, when, when times are hard, when I'm pressed in, I almost want to shield God from the stuff I'm feeling because I can't handle it. Surely he can't. When in fact, when in fact he's God. Stop helping God across the street like a little old lady. We forget it's him helping us, not the other way around. And in our passage for today, what a funny sermon, by the way. I haven't even got to it. In our passage for today, I'm, I'm telling you, man, it's going to happen today. In our passage for today, we're talking about one preposition, one word that changes everything. You come away with the impression when you read this that Paul is in chains for Christ because that's what it says. He's stepped up. He is the man, a hero of the faith. And it's easy for us to think that the Christian life comes down to doing the same. And sometimes it does. But that's not what is going on here. It is not. And let me show you what I mean. Here's where we get a little nerdy. Forgive me. I'm going to put up a slide, or Jess is going to put up a slide. The NIV is what we've been working from. It has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Now, I went to the Greek just to give you a sense. I'm not a Greek scholar, but I know enough to be dangerous. Here's the thing. If you take it word for word, and you just break down each of the Greek words and turn it into English, here's what it says. The chains of me, clearly known in Christ, have become in all the palace guard and to the rest. This is essentially the Yoda version of, of the text. <laughs> The chains of me, clearly known in Christ, have become in all the palace guard and to the rest. That's what the Greek actually says. Now, if you use the endings in the Greek, it's one of those languages where the endings tell you the order. You can put it together and get an actual word-for-word -word sense for what was being said. And this is what it says. My chains in Christ have become known in all the palace guard and to the rest. Now, that's not too different from where we started. Jesse, you can go to the next slide. The NIV says it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. But the actual Greek says my chains in Christ, not for. The preposition is en, which is like ours, I-N. That's a small word, but I promise you it matters. I promise you it matters. You see, the NIV smooths it out for us because we're trying to get the, the vibe, the sense for things. And we don't say things like in Christ very easily. Or chains in Christ. No, chains are for Christ, right? That's how we would think of it. But that's not what Paul is saying. As little as it might seem, I think the, the importance here is monumental. The preposition means everything. Remember, this is a letter about meeting, or, or, or for the Philippians, it's about finding out whether their expectations are true, learning what's up with Paul. Where are you, Paul? How are you, Paul? What's the status? And he tells them right away. He tells them right away that, they expect to see Paul in chains for Christ. By the way, in Caesar's chains for Christ. And what they find is Paul in Jesus' chains. Free. Even though he's in bondage. 
What Paul is actually trying to tell his friends is that it might look like Caesar has the chains, but in truth, his chains are in Christ. Ooh, that's a different kind of jail. I'm telling you, there might be a sermon today. Who holds your chains? To whom are you in chains? Who has you? The great American lyricist and poet Bob Dylan once said, you got to serve somebody. And you do. Who is it? Who is it that holds the other end of yours? You see, the question really isn't whether you're for Christ. I don't care. I don't. And honestly, when you get to heaven and you tell God, this is what I did for you, he'll say, oh, we'll talk about that later. He doesn't. That's not the point. He was good. He could get across that street. Your value's not in the for, your value's in the in. And I want to be very clear this morning, and I feel this to my core, and it humbles me. And right now, I'm going to preach to myself. You all can watch. Jason Varner, you cannot be for Christ without first being in Christ. Before you do anything for Christ, you've got to be in him. I am convinced, and here's where I start throwing stones, I'm convinced that so much that is wrong with our churches, our, our broken American churches, our broken, I mean, we've, we've, we're part of a movement that, that's, that's, that's in process, that's, that's figuring out identity and working through some of the issues of the day, and I think larger across the American church, so much of the problem is we've lost the idea that the presence of God is the point. We've got a mission, but we've forgotten who we are, and we've forgotten who we serve. We've got the four before the end, and prepositions matter. You cannot be for Christ without being in Christ. We as a church, forget it. We cannot be for Christ without first being in Christ. That's why our worship ethos is very simple. If you're, here, if you're new here, it's, it's simple. We frame our worship around the idea that the presence is the point. Anything that gets in the way of us dwelling in the presence of God is not allowed. That means we don't turn the music up so loud that we can't hear each other singing and can't feel the body of Christ. That means we try to set our keys in a range where people can sing. That means we don't sing songs that are unsingable. That means we try to make things accessible, authentic. And when Jason Nelson's preparing for a service, he's thinking about, honestly, his, his rubric for choosing songs this week was, what is it the Lord is asking of us? It's not about us this week, and it, maybe it shouldn't be, you know, there are times inappropriate, but actually he's wanting us to thank him. He's wanting us to lean into him. The presence is the point. We start there and work backwards. You will never see me in skinnier jeans than these. You will never see me on a, you know, pastors and sneakers. I guess these are, these are okay. They're 30 bucks. You know, like I'm not... Like, they really were. They're, like, this, the fact is, the fact is, we want to put you in a place where you're encountering the living God. The in is the point. You know, the primary movement of the Christian life, the primary movement of the Christian life is not out. And you might think it is because the Great Commission says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. 
But you don't go out first, you go in first. And we know that because Jesus spent his whole life trying to get that through our thick skulls. The primary movement of the Christian life is not out, it's in. If you're wondering what Christians do, start with prepositions. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Mary and Martha. It's going to be like drive-by preaching. Mary and Martha, they're in a house with Jesus. They're sisters, and Mary is sitting with Jesus because she's got him for a second. She's like, man, I need this time. And, and Mary is, or Martha, her sister, is doing the right thing too because in her culture, she needed to prepare. She needed to serve. She was hosting and doing right by Jesus. Neither of them were wrong, by the way. You see, Jesus says, Martha, dear Martha, you're fussing too much and getting yourself worked up over nothing. One thing only is essential and Mary has chosen it. It's the main course and it won't be taken from her. That's the message. It's a, a loose paraphrase. But what he actually says is, essentially he's saying, you're doing good things, but you're not doing the goodest. Don't let the good rob you of the great. And he's saying that the great is coming and pressing into him, spending time, pressing in, right? Okay, next. In John, he says, I am the vine. I am the vine. He says this, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, abide in me is another way to translate it. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me or for me, I'll say right now, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. We see those in the fall, don't we? Such branches are picked up, they're thrown into the fire, and they're burned up. We're doing it. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Who's doing the for in this passage? It'll be done for you. You're not doing things for Christ. Pressing on starts with pressing in. Point number one, pretty simple. If you want to press on, you got to press in. Point number two is pretty simple too. And there's only two points. I'm not a real preacher. We're not doing three. <laughs> when we press in, the gospel presses on. When we press in, the gospel presses on. Point one, when we press or uh, press in before you press on, whatever my point was, we'll see. But, but two, when we press in, the gospel presses on. And note the emphasis here. Later in the letter, a few, in a few chapters down the road, Paul will say that he himself is pressing on. I press on. But in our passages, it isn't Paul that presses on at all. It isn't even his friends who press on first. Read carefully from our text. It's actually, it's actually the gospel that does the pressing on first. The gospel starts to seep out because of Paul's pressing in, and then people start pressing on after that. Let's not get the cart before the horse. The biblical scholar Ben Witherington, who is a nerd of epic proportion and makes me look like I've never seen a book, you can tell, he looks smart. He says this, the irony is that exactly while Paul is chained, the gospel is set free. Even among the Praetorian Guard in the household of Caesar itself. 
The point here is that the pressing on of the good news, and that's what our series is about, and that's the title of this sermon, right? Press on with the good news. Press on with the good news. I'm, I'm going off script. I don't know why, but my dad really liked to bowl when I was growing up, and I got drugged to bowling alleys, and this is when you could smoke anywhere, anything, all the time. You walk out of there smelling like smoke for a year, you know. They have to scrub it off you with pumice. But regardless, uh, we would go, and one day, you know, my dad taught my brother and I to bowl, and I, I remember he said, you know, we start throwing balls, and they're, they're bouncing around. This is before bumpers, cool, cool kids that grew up in the, the age where you can't fail, right? Like, there's, no, like, our balls aren't even coming. We're like, Dad, how do you knock those balls down? My dad said this, said this, forget about the pins. The game's right here. There are arrows four feet out. You aim at the arrows, the pins will fall. The fact is this. If you want to press on for the gospel, forget about the pressing on for a minute. That's not the point. If you press in, the pressing on will happen. Understand? That's the principle. That's the principle. The point is that the pressing on of the good news happened as a result of Paul's chains, as a result of his surrendering, and here we get into the hard stuff, surrendering even in suffering. He chose to press into Christ, and it got him in jail. And these are not fun jails, as if there are fun jails. But he chose to press into Christ to follow him even into the dark of a prison. But in doing so, and hear this, this is where we're, I really want to build towards this. Paul got the greatest wish of his heart. He says it over and over that what he wants more than anything is that the gospel will be advanced, and it was in miraculous ways. Let me explain. I'm not being hyperbolic. Scripture says this in verse 12, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Thank you, Jeff. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Now, you see there, it says, uh, in the palace guard, uh, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and everyone else. The palace guard and everyone else. Who are these people? Well... We know that, that it's the, it says the palace guard, the praetorian guard. These are the people like, like Caesar's elite shock troops. These are the bodyguards, the, the people that were so trustworthy and so good at what they do that they're stationed in palaces around the Roman Empire, only, but only certain ones. A very limited number of palaces could get praetorian guards. These are the best. Okay? And everyone else implies the people who are part of Caesar's household. These are anyone from servants all the way up to family members. And we know from chapter 4, verse 22, that some of them actually accept the gospel. Because he says, as he's giving greetings before he closes his letter, he says, uh, literally, he says, uh, uh, and, and, and receive these greetings um, from me, but also from some of the members of Caesar's household. Some of them became Christians. Now, I'm not going to go too far here, but I do want to say something about this. These guards and these members of the household are being exposed to a man whose message is that there is a new Lord and his name is not Caesar. And that's important because both of these groups had lords. Praetorian guards had to call the emperor Lord, Kyrios in the Greek, Dominus in the Latin. 
In fact, most of the Roman emperors made themselves the title Dominus et Deus, which meant Lord and God. You had to call them that, and if you're Praetorian Guard, you really had to. Second thing, the leading religion among the Praetorian Guard we know from history is, is the religion of Mithras. It's a cult religion. It was something that, that really appealed to them because it had like a, only men could do it. It was secret society, and you had ranks just like in the military, and it appealed to them. And it appealed to that Mithra was a hunter who was kind of good at killing stuff, and they're like, this is, this is the God I want. Do you know they called Mithra Kyrios? Kyrios. And do you know that the people in Caesar's household referred to him as Lord? He was their dominus, their master. These people already had lords. And so when Paul, who's there because he's already proclaimed another lord, starts telling them about a new lord, instead of being turned away entirely, it seems to be penetrating their ranks. And this has particular meaning given that in verse 14, Paul talks about how confidence has grown in, you guessed it, Kyrios, in this Lord. N.T. Wright, another nerd, says this, The whole imperial garrison knows that Paul is in chains for his message about a new Kyrios, a new emperor. And this then gives the local church fresh courage to proclaim the word of the gospel. Now this is powerful. This is powerful. This was a capital offense. Paul was on trial to be killed, and yet as he waits to be tried for preaching a new Lord, the message actually spreads. I, am, I, am, uh, I can't help but think of Joseph, who says to his brothers, we're going back to the Old Testament for a second. Joseph says when his brothers come and say, we're so sorry what we did to you, he says, what you meant for evil, God used for good. Caesar put him in chains. And the irony is Caesar lost the bonds he had to his people. The chains became the device by which freedom was gained. Come on. Soldiers who were used to hailing Caesar as Lord and Mithra as Lord are now starting to wonder if their own chains are misplaced. And we know that members in the imperial household, we know this from the fact that he writes, whose very livelihoods depend on the Lord Caesar begin to believe that Jesus is the true Lord and God. Now, they might still work for Caesar, but they have transferred their chains to Christ. That is powerful, and that is a miracle. That is a miracle. You see, now I've got to preach again. And you all can take a break. This is kind of a... Jason Varner, there is power in surrender. There is power in surrender that makes possible the impossible. If you want to see the great, you got to start saying yes to Jesus. My message today is rather simple. If you want to press on, you got to press in. The bad news is, and I'll be honest with you, no sense faking, that the only way to press in is to submit, to surrender. That's a hard concept in a world where abuse is perpetrated around those words so often. When you give up your power and you submit, you will be taken advantage of by this world. 
whole groups of people have felt that, but you may have felt it in your personal relationships. It's scary, and it doesn't make sense. Maybe you've been hurt when you let your guard down and let, gave away some of your power, when you surrendered. And yet, and yet, that's what it means to be in chains. can be hard that's the bad news that's the price that's the price but there's good news too and here it is first there is actual actual power in your pressing into Christ it might look for all the world like you're giving up your power but actually you're enabling some other power to go free that is better than anything you could ask or imagine. So there's real power in our pressing in because the good news is advanced with power. But second, second, there's good news here because these chains, as unlikely as it might seem, they're the only ones that will bring you peace and joy and we're going to be talking about joy in the coming weeks and how Paul gets his joy what the source of his joy is in and that's because essentially the nutshell is this he's put his chains in Christ you got to serve somebody band you all can come up All of this, I'm going to bring it back to Jesus. This is exactly what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 11. He says this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know that word rest here, I can't help but uh, just glory in this word. It's anapazo in the Greek. It comes from two words, ana and Paul. I put it up there just to keep this simple, but it's a compound word that literally means to insert pause into your midst. How many of you today when you're buying groceries or dealing with bills or messing with the lawn would love just a moment of pause to be inserted into the midst of what you're doing? That's the kind of rest Jesus is promising, and it's that kind of rest that brings joy. It sounds so counterintuitive, though. Take on burden, take on chains, take on a yoke. Give yourself, submit yourself. That's what we got to do to get free? How is that possible? It sounds so counterintuitive, but so do the most powerful things in life. One way you know when you're, at, you're on the right path is if you're noticing that it's a little bit of mystery, right? The paradox is near. You've got to lose your life to gain it, Jesus said. One of our own, uh, one of our own here is, is working on a book right now, and he asked me not to share his name, but I've got his name on the slide, so that'll take care of that. But he's, he's working on a draft, and I've just been privileged to read a little bit. But he said this, and I really thought it was powerful. He said this, fruitfulness begins by dying. Becoming great occurs by becoming smaller. Neither is naturally desirable. To become Savior, the firstborn from among the dead, and the first of the fruits, he had to fall into the ground. 
Now, our falling to the ground involves bending a knee and offering ourselves to be chained to Christ. Quite simply. It's taking the chains, you've all got them, and it's handing them over and saying, here, you take the other end. Now, some of you have the other end attached to all kinds of things. And listen, let's just be real. Some of it's success, some of it's, it's uh, uh, chasing the, the ideal, it's, it's brand, it's swag, it's, it's, it's ideas, it's, it's, it's Instagram, it's Pinterest. Some of you, it's alcohol. Some of you, it's gambling. Some of you, it's an unhealthy attachment to a family member, maybe your kids. Some of you are chained to yourselves. They call those handcuffs. You notice that? That's all handcuffs are. You're chained to yourself. And how, how's life going when your hands are tied? You were not made to be chained to yourself. The way forward, the way forward involves us offering our chains for Christ. We all offer ourselves to something, even if that something is just meaninglessness, depression. It's all nothing. I have friends that are telling me that that's, their, that's where they're at. It doesn't matter, man. There's nothing there. But that's where they put their chains. I want to encourage you this morning to exchange your chains. You can stand up. If you would, please stand up. I want to encourage you this morning to make a conscious decision to exchange your chains. This isn't just for people who don't know the Lord or haven't made a decision for Christ. This is for some of us who, without meaning to, during the week, have like uncarabinered our chain from Christ and said, you know, this is all right. Right? We get that too easily. Today's the day to kind of make that right. We've got a prayer wall over here. Uh, it's, it's confidential. Um, it's shared with a, a confidential prayer team. But we don't even, it doesn't even have to be for the prayer team. Put what you want to let go of. Write it on there and put it in. I promise you, doing things like that makes a tangible difference. Making a tactile move will help you let go. And recommit to putting them in Christ. Maybe you've never heard anyone talk about the gospel like this. I'm sorry if you haven't. This is the truth. Well, come talk to us about how you can offer your chains and put them in the right spot. It's not going to be great. It's not going to be perfect. It'll, you'll suffer. You'll still have all the same bad stuff. But there'll be meaning and purpose in it. And there'll be a joy that, that I think you'll be surprised by i'll be here to pray with you we've got john over there with the prayer team head that way after church um I, whenever i preach I, I made a promise about 10 years ago that i wouldn't preach ever again without uh inviting someone to, to pray if you're resonating at all with what i've said let me pray with you not just for you because i'll get something out of that too i need this today let me pray with you let's pray about your chains so as we sing this last song, I want to encourage you to exchange your chains, to trade in the ones that truly do have you bound for the ones that in the greatest of paradoxes will make you truly free. Let's respond in singing, in prayer, and by prayer over here.